Acts chapter 18. If you've watched much live theater or perhaps Broadway-type plays or musicals, then you understand something of how a curtain call works. The end of the play, after everyone has exited the stage, the characters begin coming back onto the stage for a final recognition. But they come in a particular order, in order of the weight of their roles. So those with very minimal roles and very few lines would come out first and start the line on the outside of the stage. And then moving toward the middle, the more significant roles fill the line until at last the lead or leads come and fill that middle gap, completing the line of all the characters of the play. By then it's a standing ovation and the entire cast together bows and kind of wraps up that curtain call. Well, our text unfolds the cast in this story of Kingdom Advance. It's a unique passage. It's kind of a transitional passage. And yet in this passage, we have really the most biographical information of anywhere else in the New Testament on several of these key characters. Of course, we know the main character in this Kingdom Advance story that Luke gives us, and that's the Apostle Paul, but we need also to appreciate the roles of some of these other characters that are mentioned for us. So this morning, this is what I want us to focus on, the truth that God uses the unique gifts of his people for the advance of the kingdom. That theme really has three implications, all of which we could find rooted in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The first implication is that God gifts his people. We're not really going to expound on that today. We're we're kind of assuming that in our theme, that God gifts his people. When they come to faith in Christ by the Spirit, they are baptized into the body of Christ and are gifted specifically and individually by the Holy Spirit in the plan of God. The second implication is that his gifting is unique. We're not all the same. And by the various lists in Romans or Corinthians, we we can see at least a sampling of ideas of some of the strengths that God's Spirit may enable in us. But we're all unique. And in our text, you will quickly identify, perhaps not with Paul, this bold preacher of the gospel, but maybe with one of these behind-the-scenes characters. Our text will make it clear the gifts are unique. The third implication is that his unique gifting is on purpose. Rooted in his will and designed to be fleshed out with clear intent, that being the good of the church. So God's goodness running through these channels, these instruments, his people in their giftings, to better serve the church and advance the kingdom. Our text today isn't so much teaching these ideas, but rather illustrating them. We take these truths we know from elsewhere in the scriptures, that God gifts his people, that gifting is unique, and the unique gifting of God is designed for the good of the church and the advance of the kingdom. 
Now we want to see how our text illustrates this truth, that God uses the unique gifts of his people for the advance of the kingdom. Our text begins with the character we know best, Paul. It tells us that Paul has stayed here for a little while, but now he's moving on. So in a rare scenario in the book of Acts, Paul, we would say in our stage theme, is off the stage. The main character has just exited the stage, and we're actually going to have the spotlight on some other names. When we look at this brief kind of transitional paragraph on the Apostle Paul, verse 18 reminds us that Paul is a spiritually minded character in this story. He's under a vow, it says, and this cutting of his hair would have marked the end of the duration of that vow. Now, we're not exactly sure which exact custom or practice from the Old Testament Paul is implementing here in his kind of spiritual disciplines. The closest thing we would have to see in the scripture would be in Numbers, and that's the Nazarite vow. It could have lasted for 30 days. It was generally an expression of thanksgiving, which would make sense in our story. If you were with us as we studied the beginning of chapter 18, Paul had come to Corinth in great fear and trembling, he says. And then he's hauled before the governor there, the proconsul, Gallio, and all these accusations are made against him, and God in his providence uses Gallio to dismiss these charges and put an end to the harassment of the Christians. And so Paul has just kind of ex- performed an extended ministry in Corinth, the longest day of his ministry so far, a year and a half. So it makes perfect sense for him to have this vow in celebration of thanksgiving for what God has done. We also know the Nazarite vow could express a desire for future blessing. So the sense of a vow, it could be looking back with thanksgiving for God's blessing, or it could be looking forward. That would fit our text as well because this paragraph is the transition from Paul's second missionary journey to his Third, verse 22, he landed in Caesarea and went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That's the sending original church. And after some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That's a summary of ending the second journey, reporting back to the sending church at Antioch and then beginning his third and final missionary journey. Paul surrendered. He's asked to stay, and his response is, I will return if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. This is the second time that he has not been able to indulge his desire to stay in Ephesus. We read earlier in Acts that he wanted to go through Galatia, where Ephesus was, and the Spirit hindered him. Now he's being asked to stay there, and now's not the time. And he simply says, if God wills, then I'll be back here. This is a good reminder of why this character in this story of kingdom advance is so important. Spiritually minded, 
surrendered to the will of the Lord, ready for whatever service God calls him to do. Paul is a prominent piece of God's plan for kingdom advance. However, he's not the only name we should know. In our story now, we consider also the name Apollos. Apollos. We would call him a rising star. And I know we probably shouldn't call preachers stars, right? You don't need to tell people, well, the star of our church is uh, the Reverend Adam. Uh, That just doesn't flow right, does it? Uh, But in this stage analogy we're borrowing from, we've seen Paul exit. He's not going to be in the spotlight. But someone else is stepping into that spotlight. And if we were attending a Broadway show, we would fumble through our program to see who, who is this Apollos character? And what we have is, is in a sense, a, a biographical sketch of this up-and-coming servant of the Lord. And the description is pretty impressive. Look first at verse 24. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He's an eloquent man. He's articulate, skilled in communication. Whether that's by gifting or by practice, we don't know. It may be both. Either one comes with responsibility. If it's God's gifting on someone, then they should put it to practice. But then all of us are called to at least be ready to give an answer, and that has nothing to do with any kind of gifting or eloquent speech. That just has to do with a joy bubbling up from our hearts and spilling out to others. Eloquent. And then competent in the scriptures. What a beautiful phrase. Competence. This Ready ability, uh, an ability that seems to meet the task. Somebody may have ability. I can actually throw a football. I've been doing that with fifth and sixth graders for the last eight weeks, Nevin's flag football team. But competence would speak to how that ability matches the, the conflict or the need. So when I throw to a fifth and sixth grader, My competence level looks pretty high, I have to admit. But if I got out there with even the high schoolers that are playing football at your local high school, it's not going to look so good. And then it only gets worse from there. The competence that I have really doesn't meet the greatest field of play. Here we see this word competent in the scripture. And it reminds us of capability and strength And yet that capability and strength is in the Scripture, meaning in the the use of Scripture. And of course, Scripture in his day is primarily the Old Testament. We don't have all the letters written yet that shape the New Testament. So his understanding of, of the Scriptures that God has given in the Old Testament, that understanding is is solid and he puts it to good use. He is competent in the scriptures. Now look at verse 25, because his biographical sketch continues. 
Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That sounds similar to being competent in the scriptures. It sounds like he sat in a classroom and heard good teaching, but it's more than that. Instruction in the way of the Lord would speak to a path. In other words, a course of living. Yes, he was good in the classroom. He had, he had studied. He was competent in the scriptures. But now this instruction in the way of the Lord speaks more to the path of right living. He knew how to apply what he found in scripture to his way of life. Again, this, this is helpful to us. We can look at Paul and his spiritual discipline and his surrender, and we can learn from that character, but we need to be learning from Apollos as well. Someone who is competent in the scriptures, meaning they know what the Bible says, and they know how to apply that to their way of living. And our way of life is different. We're in different stages of life, different stages of marriage. There's singles among us, children among us, all... How do we take the scriptures and apply it to the path that God has me on? That is this instruction in the way of the Lord. The strong emphasis is on taking truth and making it useful. Taking God's truth and living right by it. I'm a better spouse and parent and worker for my employer because I'm competent in the scriptures. But the text goes on to say he was fervent in spirit. Now, this doesn't just imply some kind of hyperactivity. He's all worked up. There's challenges in interpreting this because fervent in spirit is used elsewhere and fervent in spirit serving the Lord. So it does speak of a certain level of excitement. That's the word fervor, Right. But the text reads more specifically fervent in, and the definite article is there, fervent in the Spirit. So this is the work of God's Holy Spirit in generating electricity, so to speak. It's kind of like rubbing your hands together and that heat starts, the friction causes that heat. There's that work of the Spirit that's generating something in him. He's not a self-made kind of man. This is a dependence on another kind of source of power, but it, it is evident in him. And he's described as fervent in the spirit. But the text goes on. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He was eloquent, he was competent, he was fervent. Now we see he's accurate. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. I think what's implied is he could take the Old Testament pictures and types and show us how Jesus, that recent historical figure, just a, a decade or so removed from his earthly ministry, he could show how Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of all those things. He could see in the Garden of Eden that God made a covering from the skins of animals. And he could start to show them how Jesus fulfills that. 
He would provide a covering for sinful humanity. He could go through the sacrificial system and all the temple furniture and show how Jesus is pictured in all of this. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the great fulfillment of all those Old Testament types. He is God's promised Messiah. And that Messiah that he, could, he would be able to demonstrate from the Old Testament was for Jew and Gentile alike. Apollos, with this biographical sketch, is ripe for fruitful ministry. And we see that in verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And he, his message would resonate. He's competent in those Old Testament scriptures. He's Life backs up what he's talking about and he knows how to take all those pictures and types that can seem mysterious and kind of foggy and just old and give them life because they're connected to the person of Jesus. He's boldly speaking in the synagogue. He's confident, faith-filled. And I think we could add to his biography by what we read in verses 26 and 27. When we realize that he's speaking in the synagogue and he had this limitation about the baptism of John, that's as far as his understanding of baptism went, we read that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then that just ends We're assuming all's well there. That was a success because the next verse just picks up with further ministry. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So now I think we can add humble to this description of Apollos. He's humble in verse 26, willing to listen and learn from others. As we heard earlier in the prayer, We're often not good at hearing help and instruction from others. We want to be competent and we want to kind of come across as knowing everything that needs to be known. I've got this under control. And we don't like weaknesses being evident to people. In humility, it seems he receives instruction from Priscilla and Aquila. And then in verse 27, in humility, He's willing to cooperate with the brothers. It seems this was a request made to them. Can I go? And they say, yes, that's a good idea. So in humility, he's operating with this team of servants. All this in verses 24 to 27 lead us to understand that Apollos is becoming a big deal. He's becoming a key character in the New Testament story of the advance of the gospel. And like Paul, his ministry is going to expand to multiple places. Perhaps we know this name from our study through Corinthians. When Paul was seeking to write his first letter to Corinth, remember that letter is filled with solutions to their problems in the church. And the first problem is the problem of division in the church. They were claiming favorite teachers. Some of them said, we love the apostle Paul. 
What a testimony, what a conversion, what sacrifices he's made. Others were claiming Peter. After all, he lived with Jesus for three years. He's got all those great stories he tells and and his own life, I just resonate with it, all the ups and downs, and it's just a steady story of grace. But others were saying, we're not of Paul, we're not of Peter, we are of Apollos. Now there's a teacher. Paul even acknowledges in his letters that sometimes in his presence, he wasn't as bold as in his writing. Wasn't much to look at, wasn't much of a pulpit kind of presence. But this guy, Apollos, this guy could preach. And I think what we're reading in Acts 18 shows why some people loved Apollos' ministry, even to a fault in, in favoring him, causing division. That text in 1 Corinthians is helpful to understand just how skilled, competent, ready, gifted Apollos is for this ministry. He was a big deal, a rising star. But then our text introduces us to some others who are also big deals, but in a different way. Priscilla and Aquila, special people, the kind of people that are perfectly content behind the scenes. So while our, our main character, Paul, is off the stage, there's this rising star as the spotlight comes on Apollos, and that guy can preach. Or as they might say down south, he can shuck the corn, right? You say, I never heard that before. I mean, I have, but usually for dinner, not for the Sunday service. And now we have these other characters. Oh, they might not have been the first characters out in the curtain call, but they're kind of somewhere in the middle, They didn't have all the lines and a lot of spotlight time. But they're a big deal too. And the text turns our attention to these people behind the scenes. Again, this moment in Priscilla and Aquila's ministry is probably what is most known. They pulled Apollos aside, made a few tweaks in his ideas there and sent him on. But we have just a few snippets from elsewhere, written from Corinth, the letter to the Romans in chapter 16 and verse 4, Paul says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. We don't know if that's Acts 18, our beginning story there, conflict in Corinth, when he's first with Priscilla or Aquila, or if it's something down the road. But all we know from a short little admonition to greet my friends is that these are the kind of people that, without much fanfare, are willing to make great sacrifice and do whatever it takes, yes, for the kingdom of God, but for the kingdom of God in the ministry of Paul. They're saying, hey, we'll help you along. We'll do whatever it takes. And this is the This is the the folly, though an unfortunate inevitability, of saying, well, that's Adam's church, or that's so-and-so's church. Because the Pauls and Adams and every other pastor in a pulpit is really enabled and supported by 
all the other big deals of God's gifting in the church. The ones who are willing to do the work day in and day out of all the one another's. Because when we really get down to thinking about it, it's foolishness to think that a pastor or a couple of pastors could meet every need in a body even of this size. That kind of health only comes through Priscilla's and Aquila's in teamwork with Paul's and Apollos's. So this is a big deal. While the spotlight isn't given to them much, what light does shine on them is, is worth close examination. They risked their necks to facilitate the ministry of Paul. That's Romans 16.4. In 1 Corinthians 16.19, another word of greeting. Paul writes, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. The church in their house. Again, those words aren't like weighted theologically. There's no secret meaning. It's literally, these were the kind of people, again, behind the scenes, willing to do whatever it takes to facilitate ministry. And they said, well, you need a place. Well, tent making business is good. We've got this big living space. Y'all come over. I don't know if they served food on China or paper plates. I'm guessing they're kind of paper plate people because they seem to be that kind of hands-on practical. Everyone just come. Our house will work. That's a spirit you need to consider adopting. That kind of get it done, not not in, in any pretense, but in just love for the body of Christ. You see that modeled among us? If you see that modeled well when you go to someone's house, ask them about it. Ask them if they're a little nervous inviting people over at first. Ask them, you know, do you think I should fix my best dinner or do I have to do this or do I have to do... And what you're going to find is the bar gets lower and lower when it comes to pretense and impressing people and it's just about the time together. And rarely do you hear somebody go away saying, oh, that was really good. Uh, No, 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 not talking to them. The meat they served. Once in a while that happens. The food is just that good. And some of you are really good at doing that. But what you usually go away with is not, oh, I remember the menu. It's, oh, that was really nice to get to know them. I never knew she had that in her past. I never knew he did that as a job before. And you start making connections relationally. And I think that's what we see in Aquila and Priscilla. They're not just adrenaline junkies risking their lives, nor are they pretentious people impressing everyone with their big home. No, they are all about people. And that's exactly what unfolds in our text. Because they've served with Paul at the beginning of chapter 18, Now they're serving with Apollos at the end of chapter 18, and they realize he's missing some key information. The text isn't real clear. It simply says, they explained to him the way of God more accurately because he only knew the baptism of John. John, we call him John the Baptist. 
His baptism was this call to repentance, this call to, to see the evident need for righteousness that the people don't have and that only this one who was coming, Jesus, would bring. But apparently, he didn't understand baptism of disciples. He didn't have the entire plan of the Great Commission. He's giving the gospel, but he doesn't understand how to make these disciples of Christ by this sign and seal of their following Jesus in baptism. So how did Priscilla and Aquila approach Apollos with their concern? We heard it read earlier, but let's look at it and see three observations in their approach. If you've ever had to approach someone that you think or thought was doing something wrong, you know how timid that can make you feel. Even if you're a confrontational person, you're not sure you've got it exactly right. You don't really want to offend them and run them off. But for most people, confrontation is not their favorite event. And going to someone and saying, hey, I think you could do this better. This is what I've seen. That's terrifying. But scripture lays something out here for us so that we can see it in action and realize, now wait a minute, by the help of the Spirit and in love for my brother, I should be able to do this. So what was their approach? Number one, I would call it a gentle approach. The text says, they took him aside. They didn't raise a question in a public hearing. They, they weren't trying to show how much they knew and, and where he got it wrong. It was simply, hey, can we talk about something? You know, I heard something you said and it got me thinking, you know, maybe scripture's a little more clear or we've heard from Paul this particular teaching. Or have you heard what Jesus also said to his disciples? And with all these questions, we've kind of set the table to a conversation that's actually going to better that other person. It was a gentle approach. Think through and pray through how to take someone aside. And I don't think you have to butter them up. I know some people like that sandwich approach, say some nice things, then give them the salami or whatever isn't good in the middle, right? And then some more good things. That, maybe, that's, maybe that's helpful. A lot of times it comes across as artificial and people are like, okay, get, get on to the, you obviously have something in your mind. There's a gentleness here. They took him aside. It's not a spectacle. It's not a scene. The intent is we want to help. We see that in the second approach. It's an encouraging approach. They explained to him. We might say they coached him. Coaches often yell from the sidelines. And sometimes they call a timeout and they call everybody in close. And, and they give further instruction, like, we, we've got to fix this. This game's getting away from us. We're, we're, we keep doing the same thing wrong. So hold on, stop, let's fix that, and then get back out there. But it's, it's positive. It's designed to turn momentum back in our favor. That's the heart behind this explanation. It's not you're dumb and we're smart. It's... No, we've learned something and we want to share it with you because the way you say things is far better than the way we say them. So if we can help you to get it right, we're advancing the kingdom. 
It's an encouraging approach. The plan was to make him more successful in pronouncing the good news. And third, I think we can see clearly this is a truth-based approach. Their language is not, here's what we think, or we think it would be better if you did it this way. It was, here's, here's what Jesus said. Here's what he told his disciples about making disciples and baptizing them. Here's what we learned from Philip when we heard Paul talk about his encounters with the Ethiopian eunuch and baptizing him. They shared something they knew, but it was truth-based. Look at the text. It says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. There are sometimes you have your preferences and they're different from someone else's, but that doesn't mean you go to them and fix them with your preference. Going to someone to fix them, to help them, to make them more successful in their calling, would be over truth issues, Bible issues. Come with scripture so that it's not me against you, my idea versus your idea. It's, hey, we're together already if we're willing to look at the word, and that will make both of us better. A truth-based approach, the way of God, was what they were concerned about. They weren't trying to make him a disciple of Priscilla and Aquila. They were trying to help him be a better disciple of Jesus Christ. So Priscilla and Aquila, these are significant characters in the story of the church's first century growth. We should admire their work. We should seek to imitate it. It was servant-minded. It was risk-taking. It was Bible-based. Even behind the scenes, which appeals to many of you. Study these people and realize just how fruitful their ministry was outside of a spotlight. Let me just say a word about Priscilla. Since it is often noted that her name is listed first. You ever heard that? What, what, what was it about this woman? And we can only speculate as to why Priscilla and Aquila are listed six times in the New Testament. Four of those times, her name is first. Why? Don't bother going down the path. We're not told. Nothing in Scripture tells us. We can speculate from culture and other things, but it, what should we learn about Priscilla being listed here in this ministry to Apollos. A couple of foundational thoughts. They're not on your notes, and they, they really are just foundations on which we build a more comprehensive understanding of the role of women in the family, in the church, in society. But at least start with a couple of basic building blocks. Number one, women should not teach or have authority over the whole congregation. That's not complicated doesn't need much nuance, but it's a principle that's under great attack. In my lifetime alone, this has gone from being kind of a non-issue in, in the more conservative evangelical circles that we sit in. But I would say, uh, with the reality of abuse of church authority, coupled with a, a spectacular rise in critical thought, critical meaning as a theory, critical theory, this, this 
constant division between classes, Marxism. Couple abusive authority with this rise of division and the church is being assaulted. And by church, I mean gospel preaching, Bible-believing churches are being assaulted with this idea that women should be able to teach and have authority over the congregation. Just start simply again. There, there are a lot of conversations to be had, but it must start with a foundational stone that includes the clear teaching of the Bible. Women can't teach and have authority over the entire congregation. Second building block. Women should have a special focus on teaching younger women the path of godly living. Notice special focus, not only focus. We're just trying to state what does the scripture say that we can grab onto and say, okay, that's really clear, that's really clear. And you go to Titus and something that does single out women is, hey, be teaching anyone younger than you what by God's grace you've learned at your stage of life. And that gets handed all the way down. I know we, we kind of dissect it into older and younger, but it's kind of older. We could think of the 60s and 70s teaching the 50s and the 50s and 40s teaching those that are kind of the young moms and the young moms helping out. It can go down the line because it just says older and the implication is there in their walk with the Lord and in their experience of his grace. So teach the next one following you something that you've learned. That should be a special focus when we consider the role of women in the church. So women cannot teach or have authority over the whole congregation. Women should have a special focus on teaching younger women that path of godly living. And number three, women should be actively engaged in the one another's that shape Christian relationships. The one another's are not for men only. They are for Christians. So men and women are called to carry out the one another commands in relationship with each other. This includes relationships with both women and men. So our third kind of building block for the role of women in the church is with both women and men, you exist in the relationship of one another and the Bible tells us what that should look like. Now, could we talk a lot more about which of those one another's and to what extent and in what context? Obviously, plenty of them could not be my wife with someone else's husband in exhortation and solitude. It's, we understand that. But do we understand our beginning place? That as brothers and sisters in Christ in a family, we're supposed to relate to one another. And may I remind you that those one another's are based on the word. So a woman should be engaged in one another relationships with both men and women, and those relationships involve the truth of the word. The Bible encourages women to know the Bible well and to speak it often. That's the nature of Encouraging one another, comforting one another, exhorting one another. If we're not careful, we take what's really clear, women can't teach and have authority, and, and we start trickling that down, and, and, and you can't do that, and you can't do that, and, 
and eventually we're left in kind of a, a quandary. Can, can a woman speak the word to her husband? Or are we going to cite some submission text that says, no, you can't do that one another? Can a godly woman speak truth to me as the husband of Carrie, but also the pastor of the church? Well, you better believe they should not, right? Wrong. <laughs> yes, godly women have spoken to me truth. I've sat in the council of godly women who have said, you need to love your wife better in this way. So godly women can speak the truth of the word to any brother in Christ. Now, again, can we find submission all through the teaching regarding women in the Bible? Yes, we can. But let's rightly understand that. That could be the next cornerstone. What does submission look like? But it doesn't look like they do not speak the word. They do not study the word. Otherwise, this text in Acts 18 becomes a huge knot. What do we do with this woman? Her name's listed first. And she's speaking truth in correcting a preacher. But when we look at these people and how they loved ministry, how they loved servants in ministry, we understand this, this isn't some raging rebellion coming out from under submission and taking over a situation. No, it's a man and his wife who both know and love the truth of God's word and they're helping another brother to better get it right. So think through this idea of the role of women in the church. Yes, it's true. They cannot teach and have authority. But it's true that they have a special teaching ministry to younger women. And the third one is the one I think we probably miss or at least misunderstand the most. That as equal family members in God's family, brothers and sisters in Christ, we speak the word to each other. And that only happens when the word dwells in you richly. So whether you're male or female here, you study the word. You meet your God there. You see him and his character and his promises. And then when that's filled your heart, you're able to share it with others. So that biography of Priscilla and Aquila, it's short in our text, but it's sweet. Here are hardworking, God-fearing, church-loving people. And they're behind the greatness of Apollos and the greatness of Paul. So learn from that. And don't, don't, don't dismiss your gifts by saying, well, I could never do what he does. And maybe you never should because God hasn't said, I want you to do this. But what has God asked you to do? That's what Priscilla and Aquila are challenging us with. So what do we make of this transitional text? Paul ending one missionary journey, beginning the next, but kind of walking off stage. We, we don't learn about Paul much. Instead, we meet Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. And we see these other gifts in the church. Two simple applications. Number one, you must pursue competence in the word. In this text, we see the need for competent teachers but we also see the need 
for competent listeners. There's no excuse for Grace Bible Church to be led into heretical error and to abandon biblical truth because teachers in the pulpit went off the rails. Oh, they'll be accountable, but a congregation should rise up and say, no, we'll have none of that. The church needs competent teachers, but it needs competent listeners who can hear and say, and that seems a little out of balance. Could that mean this? Some of you will ask questions after a service. It happened just the other week. And that's, that's refreshing. That's encouraging. It, it puts the, the rails up from the gutters in the bowling alley, and it makes sure we're going to stay in this path of keep looking at the Bible rightly, keep working to see what it says. Don't just take it from pastor so-and-so or radio preacher so-and-so. If they're saying what's true, take it and do it. But if they're starting to wander, then do what the text says. Do that call aside thing and ask your questions and pursue the better truth, the fuller truth. You must pursue competence in the word. You bear some responsibility for the doctrinal integrity of the church because elders do not make a church. Buildings and places to meet and budgets do not make a church. It's you, the people. So know the word. Be competent in it. Number one, you must pursue competence in the word. Number two, you must use your gifts in the church. The end result of the gifts of Priscilla and Aquila, sharpening the gift of Apollos, is there in verse 27. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Apollos was sent off on his journey and people were greatly helped in following Jesus because of all that we've just read about. Paul would write in his letter to the Corinthians that the Holy Spirit has gifted the individual believer for, he says, the common good. Not just for their good and the exercise of their gift, quite the opposite, so that their gift could be invested in everyone else and everyone benefits. I know you can't stay around after the service for two hours. I'm usually telling people, hey, are you hungry? So am I. Can we go home now? But the point is, when you come, you look around in the body and somehow your gift must be like computing. You can almost hear the hard drive running like, okay, how can my gift be used? In this gathering, in the fellowship time afterwards, throughout the week, how can my gift be used? The gifts are for the common good of God's church. That's why you sit among us in this body because God is good and he is good to his church and he is good to his church through the gifting that he's given to you. And there are a lot of different gifts and combinations of gifts that make up this church and the broader church. So we have to ask the question, what does God want me to do? And, and if you don't know but your heart is stirred to do, then just come and talk to me. I, 
I'm not going to have a ready answer as to what your specific gift is, but we can at least explore what it looks like to invest in people and to love people like Priscilla and Aquila, and maybe all of us will figure out your gift as we go. What does God want you to do? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. And you've named names in these passages, and of course there are countless unnamed believers carrying out similar ministry. But by naming names, we are reminded that every one of us is part of your plan to advance your kingdom. So let us feel that privilege and that responsibility this morning. Let us aspire to servant-hearted, risk-taking, Bible-based ministry of our gift. Help us, please, to that end. For the blessing of this congregation and your broader church and for the advance of your kingdom to the praise of your glory and grace. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.